<laughs> Hello, everyone. I am super glad to be uh, delivering the message this morning. Um, two things first, everyone quietly asking, why is he wearing a suit? Because I recently acquired a suit. <laughs> why isn't he wearing a tie? Don't push me, you know? I'm not the tie kind of guy just yet. Anyway. Um, First, I want to thank everyone very much. Um, I think you were appraised last week that my family was going through some pretty rough times. Um, all the news that came out of that is, is pretty good, um, so praise God for that. And I just want to thank you all. Some of you have been in personal contact with me. Uh, I know that a lot of you prayed for me um, and my family, so for my mother and sister. So thank you very much again. Now, I'm going to read the passage. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then I will pray, and then we will dive into God's Word. Here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God had destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, and so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining the spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me pray. Father God, please open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul naturally is coming off the back of chapter 1, which we encountered last week, about how the wisdom of God seems like foolishness to the world. The way that God saved his people was so unlike what anyone would have conceived that it literally needs to change the way you look at the world for you to accept it. I mean, the core of our gospel message is... And this is something of a reduction, but nonetheless. Good news, God became a man and we murdered him. 
and now everything is fine. <laughs> that does not make sense. God is not supposed to be a man, and if he becomes a man, it's a huge step down for him. And if we killed him, then God is dead, and that sounds very bad. And if he came back to life, we can expect more than a sternly worded letter complaining about his reception. It doesn't make sense because we are starting from the wrong place. You actually need to sort of reboot your brain, dig up all the old things we knew, and start again with new assumptions from square one. And this passage calls this the mind of Christ. Knowing that the gospel means changing the foundations of your world. And that begins with the mind of Christ. Mark Twain has a good quote that goes like this. It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's the wrong assumptions about the way the world works, about what we can successfully accomplish by ourselves, about who we are and where we stand in the universe. For example, there was a guy called Timothy Treadwell. I don't know if anyone's heard of him or not, but he was a world expert on bears. Grizzly bears in particular. He was sort of a bear whisperer type character. When Disney made their animated film Brother Bear, Treadwell was on staff there to make sure they accurately portrayed these creatures. Treadwell became famous for his campaign to promote, I need to quote this, getting close to bears to show they were not dangerous. I think you see where this is going. Now this guy had a genuine, full-hearted belief that bears really are gentle, unthreatening creatures, and they only become hostile if you provoke them. And he studied bears up close, and I am not kidding, he would do this by sidling up to a bear and singing, I love you, in this sort of reedy quaver. And he devoted his life to teaching people to sing their way closer to live bears. He believed that the bears would find this particular uh, introduction unthreatening, and they would accept him as one of their own. Now I'm giving you zero points for guessing how Timothy Treadwell died. <laughs> You are right. Death by bear. Ding, ding, ding. I would like to know how often people met this guy and told him he was completely nuts. I expect it was probably just about every day of his adult life. Someone said to him, what you're doing is crazy. Bears are dangerous. But he couldn't hear it. Because he just knew that they weren't. He knew for sure that bears were safe, and he literally bet his life on it. And unfortunately, it wasn't what he didn't know that got him in trouble. It was what he knew for sure that just weren't so. So is it any wonder that when the world hears the gospel, it thinks it's foolishness? Is there any wonder that most Australians will reject the gospel message when they first hear it because the message they hear is you need Jesus in their life and as far as they are concerned, they know for sure that they don't. They know the direction their life is going and what it's going to be like. They know they're going to finish their course. They'll get a job in real estate. They're going to save up. They're going to retire early. They're going to spoil the grandkids and then die old and happy halfway through a Kit Kat chunky in front of the TV. They know what their life 
will be like, and they are not taking consultation on the issue. Is it any wonder then that God so frequently uses failure and loss and pain in people's lives to bring them close to him? When all the things they were sure about are shaken to the ground. When all of a sudden it becomes clear that maybe you don't know these things for sure and maybe you won't get the job you wanted or you won't have the kids you expected or maybe your parents aren't going to be around forever and suddenly you don't know what comes next or how to keep going after this. And it's then when our little personal sandcastles of satisfaction are knocked down that we are able to listen and hear the message that the life we live is not our own, and that we are accountable for our actions to a God that loves us so much he would die for us. So when Paul begins this passage, he makes the defense that when he came preaching, he wasn't trying to persuade people. He wasn't making a persuasive argument. He told the people of Corinth what he was about, that he was on a mission from God, and he showed them how little they knew about how the world worked by healing the sick and casting out demons. Paul says this, starting at verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. God's power was the validating factor. He rocked their world with miracles from heaven, and they began to revise what they knew about everything in life. Verses 4 and 5 are a particular interest, so I'm going to repeat them again. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Brothers and sisters, if you have ever found yourself frustrated because you could not find the words you needed to fully explain or articulate what you believe, be reassured. It is not your presentation or your clever words or a convincing argument that will bring people to Jesus. It is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is something that all Christians, and particularly young preachers, need to have beaten into their heads. There is nothing you can say to someone from your own vocabulary, from your own ideas, that will convince someone who knows already for sure that they don't know Jesus, and they will convince them that they do. You cannot convince someone of that. It must be demonstrated. Now, in Paul's case, this demonstration of the Spirit's power included healing and exorcisms and prophecy and the whole suite of apostolic miracles. Now, I believe the Spirit still demonstrates his power with these things today, but as a believer who has experienced very little of these things firsthand, I'm forced to ask, what does that mean for the rest of us? What does it mean to say that wise and persuasive words are actually powerless? Because we know we are all called to spread the gospel. 
Paul could bring people back from the dead to testify to the Spirit's power. What do we have? Are we just stuck? Are we doomed to use the only thing we have, words that don't work, and then to fail to win souls for the kingdom? Fortunately, it doesn't take a healed leper to demonstrate the Spirit's power. Because the Holy Spirit's primary work in the world is the regeneration of sinners. It is taking broken people and making them whole. The Holy Spirit's primary work in this world is changing the lives of those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. If you live in such a way that shows you are a disciple of Jesus, in a changed way, then that is a pure demonstration of the Spirit's power. And this is not a cop-out answer. The Holy Spirit works to make you living proof of himself. This isn't just talking about what the Spirit has done in your life. Though testimonies are powerful and useful. That would just be an explanation. What, needed, what is needed is a demonstration, which is why there are so few things as destructive to the kingdom as Christians who aren't living it. So if our cleverest and most persuasive words are useless for the cause of preaching the gospel, why am I specifically here? Why do we have this stage? Why don't we just read the gospel and then take a 30-minute meditative nap and then wake up again to close in song? It certainly would be easier for the pastors who otherwise spend a lot of time trying to marshal their clever and persuasive words. Paul tells us why in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us in his spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the guider and revealer of the wisdom we speak among the mature. That is, once you've had your life rebooted, once you've changed those assumptions about how the world works and given up some of the things that you knew for sure that just weren't so, then you get a new foundation. It doesn't make sense before that happens, though. That's a critical step, and it needs to happen. Now, we keep using the word wisdom throughout this passage, and we will continue to use it throughout Corinthians. As far as Scripture is concerned, wisdom is instruction about how to live, how to live the good life. It's not a special secret. It's how you be a person in this world in the right way. So really, if we drill down to it, that is what all wisdom is for. All our books about apologetics and Christian seminars and conferences, they're all in-house resources for believers to address their doubts, to refine their thinking, and to know how to live right before God in the light of his goodness. And we can do that because part of the whole mental renovation that we do when we are accepting that God is real and that he has sent his son to save us, is that we accept that God knows better than we do about how to live this life. 
And so if he has spoken through his spirit, and the things that we have in scripture are spirit-breathed and available for us all to read, then we have access to that wisdom. Yesterday, April 23rd, marked the 400th anniversary of the death of William Shakespeare. Now, whether you love him, or if a single school assignment turned you off him forever, he's a figure worth acknowledging. For Anglophones, for people who speak English, Shakespeare is second only maybe to the King James Bible in shaping how we speak and how we think with words. He so impacted the English-speaking world and had such penetrating insights into human character that he was literally able to make up words and people would just sort of add them to the English lexicon and roll on with their lives. If you've ever used words like courtship, luggage, gossip, eyeball, flawed, unreal, swagger, lonely, Shakespeare just made these up and it changed the way people thought. That and 1,700 other words. You owe your ability to think in some part to the bard. And there's a famous line in Hamlet, where uh, Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, is talking to Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, his old buddies from university in Wittenberg. And at this stage in the story, Hamlet is pretending to be insane. Later on, he'll actually be insane, but at this point, he's pretending to be insane. And he makes this remark about being in prison. And his friends ask him, what are you talking about? You're not in prison. And he tells them, Denmark is a prison. It's just a very spacious prison. <laughs> and they are skeptical. They do not feel that Denmark is a prison by any stretch of the imagination. And Hamlet's reply is, why then, tis none to you, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So to me, it is a prison. Now, this doesn't strike us as a particularly strange notion because it's so common today. The idea that there is no good or bad, but just thinking makes it so. Because to us, to believers, we have a consistent source of wisdom. We have the word of God. And we can say there are a great many things that are good and bad. And how you think about them doesn't change their nature, it changes yours. And it may make you more good or bad. To Shakespeare, though, saying what's right for me might not be right for you, was the kind of thing that a crazy person would say. It was too crazy for a crazy person. It was the kind of thing that a person who was pretending to be crazy would overact and say. But with that crazy thinking, I think Shakespeare actually kind of foresaw the way things were going in his time. Because we end up with this as a way of thinking we certainly experience in 21st century Australia. That is, you're expected to act according to your gut to your own belief, your core convictions, however you determine them, and that itself is good. As if these thoughts and feelings were just pure and lovely things that just sort of appeared out of nowhere in our minds and hearts, as if our thoughts and feelings were not influenced a great deal by things we already learned before or picked up in habits from our parents or were simply influenced by our own selfish natures. This is the wisdom of the age. The wisdom of this age. It is the, the wisdom of this age because ages come and go. And this kind of wisdom comes and goes. It's like a fad. Like yo-yos. 
Every 10 years or so, someone decides yo-yos are cool again. This happened to me twice so far. Happened once in about grade seven. No one had yo-yos, and then everyone has yo-yos. So I got a yo-yo, and I started getting pretty good. And then no one has yo-yos again. What's cool now? Pogs. Apparently, pogs were cool. And then something like 10 years later, I'd be driving around, and I'd see kids with yo-yos. Did no one tell them about pogs? But then they're gone again, and I think we're just about due for a return, so yo-yo fans, start your engines. <laughs> but it's not just toy fads, but all of human morality, everything we know about right and wrong is up for grabs in our culture. Because these emotional whirlwinds we have define our culture, and we have no anchoring wisdom beyond you do what you think is right for you. Now, the obvious example is the same-sex marriage discussion. Ten years ago, I think we might have thought that was a non-starting issue, that we were going to do better than we did on that one. If you went back in time ten years and said that both major political parties in this country would be trying to get same-sex marriage legalized in a way that benefited them, you would have sounded very strange indeed. But now we see most of Europe going ahead with it, America going ahead with it, and it begins to look here like it's only a matter of time before there's a referendum or some manner of legislation that decides, in contradiction with Scripture, and not just with Scripture, but with all of human recorded wisdom, that marriage is just an act between two consenting adults, full stop. And then everyone who was fired up for that debate, everyone who marched and waved a sign, will completely lose interest, and they'll find a different battle to fight something else that validates their internal feelings-based moral compass. Because there is no good or bad, but thinking and feeling makes it so. And if the church is going to be realistic about the age that it lives in, it, we, need to realize that our ideas of wisdom about how to live and what is morally true come from God's Word, comes from the Bible. And until there is some manner of great revival, our culture, generally speaking, will not listen to us. This is a depressing truth. But we benefit from grasping it. We speak of a message of wisdom among the mature, those who know God, who are growing in faith. Those who are not believers, those who are not spiritually mature, will reject this wisdom. And no clear articulation, no eloquent speech or political movement in our favor can substitute for the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Without that, our culture is going to freeze us out of discussion. Paul says, these things have been revealed to us by his Spirit. God's wisdom, which no eye has heard or well, no eye, has no eye has seen or ear heard or mind conceived is revealed to those who are spiritually mature because the Holy Spirit guides them. And on the foundation of the gospel, they can understand it. And the world is incapable of understanding this kind of wisdom. From the rest of verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit in them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness because they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of God so as to instruct the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is responding in this letter to a, a wave of, of slick false teachers that were rolling through Corinth and undermining his authority. They bring, as far as Paul is concerned, useless wisdom of the world. And it horrifies him to see them being taken in by churches and treated as if they have the kind of authority that, spirit, that Paul has demonstrated through the Spirit. And this whole chapter then really only has one very strongly underscored point. That we have the mind of Christ. We have this principle of Spirit-given wisdom that informs how we live and behave and is bigger than ourselves. But Paul wouldn't be writing this if we didn't need to be reminded of this fact. If we didn't need from time to time to look at ourselves and make sure that we were lining up with that spirit wisdom and to ask, is this a human judgment I'm making? And if it is, does it conflict with the mind of Christ? Because the truth is, that's really how we were made to operate. We need to believe that there is something bigger than ourselves that imposes order on our world. That there are rules of right and wrong that are bigger than us. We have the distinct advantage of our God in fact being real and his word being true and enduring. But even those who don't know God have to make up their own God just to get through the day. There are very few people who are born with the mental hardware to accept this, really accept this idea that there is no right and wrong. We call them sociopaths. Everyone else will pick some kind of morality from the wisdom of the world and then subject themselves to it, even if the whole time they are claiming freedom and choice. I have to give you now my best story. It's my personal favorite illustration, and I've been holding off using it some other times because I like having it spare, just in case, you know, like an ankle holster. You know. uh, <laughs> but here it is. Do young kids still uh, do the thing where they threaten to run away from home, but they don't really have the guts to pull the trigger on that? Oh, good. I, I must have been five years old. I, guess I was at least in grade one. I remember because... My, my good friend Jesse Yu, who who'd lived pretty close by, a couple of blocks away, and I decided that I was going to go and live with him and his family, and I'm sure that his parents would have been flattered by that decision. <laughs> and I don't know what did it, I don't know what, what tripped this tantrum, but I told Mum, I'm done, I'm going to run away, I'm going to live at Jesse's house, and we'll play Nintendo whenever we like, because he's got a whole bunch of games from China that I've never heard of, and it's going to be great, and you'll be sorry that you took away my Lego or whatever happened. 
and she did the right thing. She said, go ahead, run away. That's, that's what you call diffusing the oppositional element, right? Normally when you do that with kids, they get, well, well, the whole point of this tantrum was to upset you, so forget it. But I had built up a good head of steam at that point. So I said, fine, and I went to my room, and I got my little Thomas the Tank Engine backpack, and I packed my hat and my little lantern sliding torch thing with the mirror you can flash Morse code on, and the zapper gun from my Nintendo. That was my favorite, you know, like for protection. There's wild gunmen out there. Anyway, I, <laughs> I marched out of the house, saying, I'm running away. Okay. I'll never see you again. Okay. Bye. Bye. Now, Mum did not expect me to follow through with this. I had called her bluff. And about five minutes later, I hadn't come back yet. Now she's worried. She's imagining the headlines, five-year-old child killed after pulling Nintendo gun on police. Worst mother in the world. Go ahead, run away. So she runs out of the house and finds me about three houses down, sitting at the corner of the street, looking very sulky next to the street sign, and drags me back inside. Because I had fully intended to run away, and I knew where Jesse's house was, and I could have gone much further in that time. I could have got into the storm water pipes and you know, off the grid, that would have been it. But <laughs> I'd gotten out to the curb, and I'd remembered that I wasn't allowed to cross the road by myself. <laughs> so I'd followed it down to the corner, which was as far as I could go without crossing a road. And I could see no way forward. That was the edge of the world. So I just sat down and gave up. But I made her worry, so I won. But I was, I was five, the world was big and strange, and the only thing that makes it comprehensible, that makes it graspable at all, are a couple of rules. You don't cross the road by yourself being one of them. I couldn't question that rule. It'd be like pulling at the thread at the corner of your jumper and ending up with a handful of wool and no jumper. The thing about the world is, even though it seems bigger when you're five, you don't actually get that much bigger yourself. It's still pretty big, and for it to make any sense, you do need some rules. And right now, the popular way of looking at our culture is progress, is that mankind is moving forward, the old superstitions are falling away, science is slowly fixing every problem and curing every, every disease. Never mind the fact that we may have wiped out polio, but we are now killing ourselves at record rates. Or that we put a man on the moon 40 years ago with slide rulers and long division, and we can't do it now with supercomputers and satellites. In some ways, we're going backwards. In some ways, we're getting dumber. Progress is neat, but it's a false god. It has no purpose other than motion. It has no authority except its own momentum. But our god is the same as he has always been. His authority is eternal. It's unchanging. And he doesn't make up rules to suit our passions. He made us. And he expects us to be conformed to his desire for our lives by the power of his spirit. That is his wisdom. Submission to God is to receive that mind of Christ. So Paul's case is clear. You cannot appeal to wisdom 
to change the mind of people who don't know God. That comes from a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. For Paul, that was miraculous for us. More than likely, it's by a lived testimony of a life changed by God. The world has to see the lived truth of the gospel to react to it and to question the things that they know for sure. Until they see it, they won't doubt those things that they think they know. And once we do come under the lordship of Christ, once that does happen, we receive this mind of Christ and this new understanding of the world under God, meaning we can now read the scriptures, we can pray, we can pursue the Holy Spirit and receive his wisdom. And placing ourselves in submission to God, we receive forgiveness from sins, the promise of eternal life, and the wisdom to live now in the way that God had always intended for us. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son to die for us. To the world that makes no sense, the world doesn't know it needs saving. We ask your Holy Spirit would guide us as we bring your gospel to those you've placed in our lives and in our paths. That we can trust in you to prepare them for your word and that the work that we do, we know we cannot do it all ourselves. We rely on you to help us demonstrate the futility of human wisdom and the power of your spirit to change lives in this world as surely as your son gives life in the next. Help us to refine our minds, to adhere closely to the mind of Christ so that we can see the world for what it is and so that we can be in it what you want us to be. We ask now and forever that you give us the insight to deal with the culture that surrounds us and the love and accountability before one another in this place to help each other live in a way that the world will see and know that your spirit is powerful and that your son is Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.